Okay, if you have Bibles with you, please open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. So I've been doing something I haven't done in, in quite a while, in years actually. I'm, I'm preaching through an entire book of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Historically, throughout most of my years of ministry, I've, I've taught topical series. Um, I like to find a topic and then just as doggedly as I can, just mine that topic for everything I can find. Um, but it just seemed like it was time for something new. So we've been working our way uh, through John's Gospel. We're about 25% of the way uh, through it at this point. Um, so we've got a ways to go. I'm not in any rush. I encourage you, uh, during the week, as you have your own prayer times, as you read Scripture, um, use John's Gospel. I, I would encourage you to read through it, to to meditate on it, to study it, to pray the scripture. I think it will be a blessing to you uh, personally. And I think if we did that as a group, along with the series on Sunday mornings, I don't know, help synchronize us spiritually together. I, I don't see anything, any downsides to it. So John 6. Today we'll, we'll begin John chapter 6. We'll look at the first 15 verses. So if you have a Bible with you, you could just follow along up at the screen. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. That is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd of people coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy even enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another, another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. He said, here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will that go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place. They sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves and gave thanks and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Lord, I thank you for your word, for the truth, for the authority that's in your word. Lord, I pray that you would use your word to have its full impact on us. Reveal truth to us. Lord, may we know the truth. And may it truly set us free. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So once again, um, I've been enjoying David Guzik's commentary as I've been preparing uh, these messages on John's Gospel. It's pro proved again to be a helpful resource to me. If you're interested in, in reading any of David Guzik's stuff, you can find his commentary free online at a website called blueletterbible.com. I, um, I think it's maintained or created 
by Calvary Chapel. So, you know, really known for their, for their excellent study of the Word. So it's been a good resource. So let's begin chapter 6, looking at the first few verses. Um, it says, uh, first, verses 1 to 4, Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. That is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. So a great crowd of people uh, followed Jesus. The first five chapters of John's Gospel, we show a very busy Jesus. He's traveling uh, constantly, and he's ministering to people everywhere he goes. Um, verse 3 seems to give the indication that um, Jesus went to the mountainside to be alone with his disciples. It was just going to be a time for him uh, and his friends. However, his reputation has grown, and people are excited, and now they're kind of going and following after him. You know, a great crowd follow him there. No doubt, this was an imposition, right? If, you're gonna, if you have plans to go do something alone with just a small group of friends and a whole crowd of people show up, your, your plans for the evening have been disturbed, right? It's not what you had planned to do. However, um, I mean, have, has that ever been your case? Have you ever just needed some downtime or some alone time and then for whatever reason, your children or the needs of somebody else kind of gets in the way of that? I'm sure we can all be familiar with that. As busy as Jesus has been, and we've already seen, like in his account with the woman at the well, he does get tired. I mean, though he's fully God, he's also fully man. Fatigue is, is, a, is a real condition for him. He rested at the well. That's why he had the encounter, the conversation with the, the Samaritan woman. I can understand if Jesus feels like, hey, I need some alone time. You know? I'm an introvert, right? How many introverts do we have here? Do you know, right? Right? We don't get energized by large groups of people, right? It just sucks the life out of us. It's like, I need a nap when it's all over. Now, the extroverts around us, they, they, they get, it just builds them up. They can't get enough. I was married to one. I completely understand, you know. Maybe there's a little bit of introvert in Jesus. I don't know. But anyway, whatever it is, he's looking for some alone time, and this crowd shows up. You know? And so even though it's an imposition, and wasn't what they, they planned to do, Jesus still ministers to, the, to this multitude, and he does it with great compassion. Verse 2 makes it clear that these people are attracted to Jesus because of the signs and wonders he performs. Sick people want to be made well, and i got to tell you what, when, when that getting well happens in a supernatural way, it's pretty easy to draw a crowd. Um, all four gospel writers uh, record this miracle of the loaves of fishes. It's in, it's in every one of the four gospels. However, only John references the timing of this event to one of the Jewish uh, Passover festivals. Uh, makes me wonder, could, could it be that this crowd of people uh, was made up of some of the, those who had traveled to Jerusalem you know, for the Passover? It could be. Now, I'm sure you know uh, that the Passover originated uh, with the Israelites' exodus uh, from Egypt. Um, just as... Uh, it's interesting here. Just as God sustained the sustained Israel in the wilderness with manna from heaven and water from a rock, here we have Jesus who sustains this multitude in their small wilderness with truly with bread from heaven, both literally and, and spiritually. So it's interesting what's going on here. So Philip asks a question, and 
verses 5 to 7. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, what shall, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test Philip, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each to have a bite. So where shall we buy the bread? Why did Jesus ask Philip this question? Why did he, of all 12 guys, why did he get asked the question? Well, it could be because Philip was from Bethsaida, which was right near uh, where this uh, miracle took place. That's possibly. I tell you what, I've had times in my experience where God has asked questions of me. Either, you know, I just hear his still small voice, you know, in my heart or in some supernatural vision or dream I've had, God will sometimes ask me questions. And this is what I've discovered. God doesn't ask me questions because he doesn't know the answer. He already knows the answer to the questions. He asks me the questions because I need to know the answer to the question. And sometimes I've found it to be very helpful just to put it back to him. Like, like, Lord, only you know. <laughs> Why don't you tell me what the right answer is to it? Because if you're asking me, I'm thinking there's a pretty fair chance I might not get this one right. Same thing with tests. We all, we will, on this journey that we're on, there'll be times when God tests us. But you need to understand, when we go through some spiritual test, <clears throat> you know tests are a punishment, Right? I mean, sometimes we might think in our head a test is a punishment. Tests aren't a punishment. When you were in the fourth grade, you, had, you took an English class and a math class and maybe some kind of civics or history class, and at the end of the fourth grade, or at the end of a, a section, there was a test, and when you passed it, you went on to the next section. At the end of the year, there's a final exam. It's the big one, right? If you pass the final exam, well, then there's promotion. So when God tests us, tests aren't a punishment. Tests precede promotion. When God's testing you, it's, it's letting you know there's an opportunity for, you, for advancement here, to take a step up, to move on to the next phase of life. And again, the tests aren't so that God can figure out where we're at. He knows where we're at. The purpose of the test is so that we'll know where we're at. Where are you at? Where am I at? Oh, I've, I've faced this test. I've learned this lesson. At least for this phase of life, for now, I got this one. So Jesus is, is testing Philip. He'll test us too. But please remember this. Somehow, I think we get it twisted in our mind, and we think that when God tests us, he's punishing us. Tests are not punishment. They're just part of the journey. If you're in training, if you're in school, if you're a disciple, if you're an apprentice, part of the process is that tests come. So if you're in a season of testing right now, cheer up. You know, it's very possible that some type of promotion is right around the corner. A test is only a test. Okay, so again here, like, again like with the, the woman, the account with the woman at the well in chapter 4, we, we see another uh, clash here between the natural and the supernatural, between the, the physical and, and the spiritual. Jesus is about to reveal spiritual truth. He's about to perform a supernatural deed. And his disciples are still very much so looking through natural lenses. Remember with the woman at the well, Jesus is talking about you know, a harvest that, that'll, you know, that's to come because the fields are ripe. And the disciples are thinking, who, who brought Jesus lunch? How did he get lunch? We, we left to get him lunch and he, come, he, he has food to eat. I, I don't get it. 
Jesus was talking about basically about a revival that was going to happen in the Samaritan town, and the disciples are still thinking about lunch. We got another food issue here. I guess Jesus likes to use food as a metaphor, a lesson to teach these guys. Jesus wants to reveal spiritual truth. He's about to perform a supernatural deed. And the disciples are still looking through their natural lenses. Jesus knows that he's about to perform an amazing miracle and feed, feed this great crowd. The disciples are still trying to figure out how are we going to accomplish this with the resources that we have at hand. <clears throat> I think we do this all the time. God's plan is a supernatural plan. God's plan is a spiritual plan. It has to be. He's spirit. He's supernatural. And yet we get locked into a natural mindset. Why, why would we do that as followers of Jesus, as followers of the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, the followers of, the, of, of him who has all power and all authority, as followers of him to whom nothing is impossible? Why would we limit ourselves to live natural lives only? Boy, that's a jip. I could follow any other so-called deity and live an, according to natural resources, but, I, but I'm a follower of Jesus. I get to live a supernatural life in the power of the Holy Spirit. Why would I surrender that high ground? Why would I yield to only living a spiritual life that takes place between my ears when, when the limitless bounds of the spiritual realm are avail available to me? Why do we usually do that? It's fear. We do that because of fear. We're afraid of control. We want, we're afraid of losing control. We're afraid of being deceived. But why would we limit ourselves? Why would we surrender the high ground? I know that people have been burned by hype and by deception. But listen, rather than throw out the baby with the bathwater, let's embrace our birthright. Let's go after the real deal. I think there's a real deal in the spiritual realm concerning being a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go for that. <laughs> and let's settle for nothing else. We have a real God who operates a real power. I want to figure out how to do that. How, how to do it better. I want to better figure out how to do what he's doing. Unapologetically, I want to live a supernatural life in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I want to do it with character and with humility and with authenticity. How about you? Who's with me? Oh, I feel so encouraged. That was awesome. Thank you, Jesus. We're with you, Tom. <laughs> oh boy. Come on, one, two, three. <laughs> All right, that's better. Remember this. God knows what He's doing. He knows what he's doing with us, just like he knew what he was doing with his disciples on that mountainside. He knows what he's doing in your life as well. He's not caused by, caught by surprise. There's no point in our journey with Jesus where we're walking with him, and we suddenly hear him say, uh-oh. Right? <laughs> he knows, man. He knows everything. He's trustworthy. So, it's half a year's wages. The disciples have two problems here. First, they don't have the resources needed to feed this great crowd. In the natural, they simply don't have it. Second is that even if they did have the money, it would have been impossible for them to purchase enough bread at the last moment here to feed 
all of these people, as Philip says, with just a bite. Listen, Jesus put them in a situation. This was his idea to feed these people. He put them in a situation where there was no natural solution to this quandary. Hmm, might he do that with us? Might that be part of our, of our spiritual journey with him? May we, following him, not in rebellion, not in disobedience, but actually in our attempt to follow him, might we find ourselves in circumstances surrounded by situations that there's no natural solution for? I think the answer is yes. And it's in those times where God does God-sized things and we learn to trust him. So Philip's knowledge of this situation was accurate. Actually, it's rather impressive. He actually assesses the situation from a natural perspective. He'd probably make a good administrator or accountant or general manager or a company controller. He'd probably be good at that job. It would indeed take six months' wages, even for every person to get a bite. About 200 denarii. You know, there are on, online, there are sites for everything. There's a conversion website where you can take um, biblical coins, big, biblical currency, and convert it to today's wages. So I thought, why not do that? That would be fun. 200 denarii comes out to 16,594 U.S. dollars and 20, 72 cents. Sorry, they don't convert it to Canadian money, but it's like fine. I guess I could just take the next step and convert it again, but close enough. But even though Philip accurately assesses the situation from a natural perspective, it's useless to solve the problem. If anything, his natural insights are not a benefit to him, they're actually a hindrance to him. It could fuel doubt, possibly stir up fear. Oh my God, this is going to be over $16,000. How could we possibly do this? We don't have that much money on us. My credit card is maxed out. I can't get the baker to provide that much bread. How are we going to do this? So sometimes the fact that we can figure it out in our heads, it's not our friend. Now, I'm not saying we ought to throw our brain away. I'm just thinking we ought to use some wisdom. There are times where we just have to trust. Now, look, how, I want to grow in my trust of God, and I'm sure you do too. But listen, this is how it's going to happen. You're going to find yourself in a circumstance where trust is required. Right? I don't know how, how you get to that point of saying, I choose to trust God unless I'm in a, in a circumstance where trust is required. I'm going to find myself in over my head. I'm going to find myself where even with all my training and skill and knowledge and capabilities to accurately assess the situation, I can't make it happen. Lord, what are we going to do? I got God here with me telling me to feed these people. I don't have the resources to do it. Now what? I can use my earthly wisdom so that it will generate fear or anxiety, or I could trust God. So, I mean, have you ever been there? I've been in those places where it's like, oh my God, how are we going to do this? You know, no fun. So Philip thought in terms of money and how much it would take to carry out this one task. But here's the problem. Jesus had resources that Philip had not accounted for. Jesus knew what he was going to do. He had the resources. Look, the people ate that day. Jesus said, feed them. They got fed. And it happened in a way that Philip couldn't even imagine it would happen. 
for all of his skill in assessing the need in the moment, he didn't account for the Jesus factor. He didn't account for the resources that having Jesus in our midst brings to it. Jesus was, was teaching them. See, Philip had failed to factor into, into the situation the supernatural. So now Andrew wants to help with verses 8 and 9. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. He has a boy with five barley loaves and two small fish. But how far is that going to go with so many? I'm thinking Andrew's trying to help. I don't know. If it was Nadine, she might have been sarcastic that day. You want to feed all these people? Well, I got five barley loaves, a couple of fish here, Jesus, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but I think Andrew's really trying to help. He's assessing the resources at hand. You know, Philip's trying to figure out how we can buy it all, and Andrew's looking around like, that guy's got some lunch. You know, I don't know, maybe a few other people have something. You know, so he's assessing the resources at hand. However, Hebrews tells us that faith is what? Being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. So at some point in this faith, or like I've told you repeatedly, trust, in this journey of trust, there's a confidence, there's a certainty, there's an assurance that comes of what's not visible before us with our natural eyes. Sometimes that's the situation. That's exactly the situation they're in right now. Jesus is assured. He is certain of what he doesn't see. The problem is that his disciples don't get it. Andrew's looking at the boy's lunch. And Philip's trying to figure out how he can come up with the finances to do it. Maybe Philip's thinking, if we take another offering, maybe, maybe that'll work. Five barley loaves. Interesting. Barley was always regarded as simple fare. More often fit for animals than, than for men. Actually, in, in the Talmud, there's a passage that says, uh, where one man says, there's a fine crop of barley. Another man answers, tell it to the horses and the donkeys. It was more often used for feed than than for bread. So Andrew asked, how far will these loaves of fish go with so many? Admittedly, there wasn't much to work with there. But this is what we find out. God doesn't need much. Little is much in his hands. It's astonishing what he can do with a little boy's lunch. Very little, as we see, can be very much in God's hands. In fact, God doesn't need anything from us at all. He has no need. There's no need in him that we can fulfill. He's perfect. He's whole. There's no lack in him. He doesn't need your time or your energy or your money. He needs nothing from you. What he wants is your heart. He passionately wants your heart. He wants to be the love of your life and for you to be the love of his. He wants relationship with you. But his need, he has need of nothing. He's welcomed us into a relationship where there are no strings attached. There's no hidden agenda. He just offers himself. He needs nothing. He simply welcomes us into what he's already doing, just like he does with the disciples here. It's, it's not work we have to make happen. It's not like we... It's not like Philip or Andrew had to make this happen. Rather, it's the privilege of partnering with him. It's relational. Jesus was about to do something amazing, and he was giving his disciples the privilege of, of partnering with him, doing it together with him. Because they're friends. Because they have relationship. 
Because he knew that this would be wonderful. So verse 10. Jesus said, how do people sit down? There was plenty of grass in that place. And they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. I think this is a beautiful picture of Psalm 23, verses 1 and 2. Right? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Jesus, as the loving shepherd, has his sheep lie down on green pastures, and he feeds them in that place. And verse 10 tells us that there were 5,000 men there. Now, we, it's commonly understood that this wasn't a men's meeting. This wasn't like a, an early forerunner of promise keepers, right? This wasn't a men's only gathering. And every likelihood that there, there is every likelihood that men and women and children were probably there as well. There easily could have been 10,000 or 15,000 people there when, when the text says from that cultural perspective that there were 5,000 men. It would have been understood that meant men and who these men represent, their, their families. So even feeding 5,000 with a little boy's lunch is pretty astonishing, but there's a very good likelihood it was two or three times all greater the number of people there. That was a full mountainside. So verse 11, we see what happens. Jesus then took the loaves. He gave thanks and he distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. So Jesus takes these loaves. He gives thanks to the Heavenly Father. And then he passes it out, no doubt with the help of his disciples. And the people had as much as they wanted until they were satisfied, vastly beyond the bite that Philip had calculated. And then he did the same thing with the fish. This is a supernatural act, right? I like some of the symbolism, too, of, of the bread. You know, in the natural, bread comes from grain. It has, and the grain has the power of multiplication and reproduction in itself. We, we had a friend in Washington who was a, a wheat farmer. Remember that? Great guy. Wonderful family. And he had you know, acres and acres and acres of farmland. And, and he, we got to take a ride in one of those uh, combines. But you climb up into that thing. Boy, what a seat up there. You know, they just harvest uh, hundreds of thousands of pounds of grain in just a few hours. But in, in that grain of seed, in that grain, it's a seed and it has the power to multiply. It has within itself fully contained the ability to, to reproduce if it's planted in soil. But you know, when you make bread, the grain is crushed. In a sense, you could say that, you know, the grain has been put to death. Right? So in other words, nobody plants flour <laughs> right? to, to, to grow grain. They plant or to grow wheat. You can't plant flour and expect anything to come from it because the seed's dead. But we serve a God who can bring life from death. That's what he does. Even though there was, you know, as it were, the, the grain was crushed, still... He could bring life from this. There's limitlessness to his power. Now, we see, we see food multiplied and, and the multitudes are fed. I tell you what, there are modern day accounts of this happening. I encourage you to do some research on your own. Not only did Jesus do this food multiplication thing repeatedly in scripture, it happens to this day. You can find reports of miraculous food multiplication in the lives of people like Heidi Baker in Mozambique or in Kathy Pullinger in 
in Hong Kong. There's, there's a number of accounts of a Catholic priest in Juarez, Mexico, as they were feeding people, and there was, there was just continuing to be enough food. And there's a book out by a, name, a woman by the name of Joan Wester Anderson, and in her book, Where Miracles Happen, there's an account of five different cases where, where things were multiplied. I think food in three cases and other resources and the other two cases. Our God is big, and he's alive, and he's absolutely active to this day. He's extremely powerful. He's bigger than we thought he is. So, verses 12 and 13. When they all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Wow, isn't that amazing? So why? Why does he collect the extra pieces? Why does he do that? Why were there 12 basketfuls collected? So nothing would be lost? Maybe. So nothing would, so there, you know, it wouldn't be wasteful? Well, Scripture says that. He didn't want it to be wasted. I think, I think both of those are probably accurate. I, I think there's another reason. I think it demonstrates the extravagant nature of our God. His, the extravagance of, of how he operates in the universe he created. I think that's true. I think it's most definitely true. Now look, we have one small corner of the universe, right? We're about a, maybe the size of a speck of sand on a massive beach and in comparison, but to date, we're the only life that we know exists. There could certainly be life in other places, I, I don't know. But so far, we haven't found any. And we do know Jesus came here. So I think the universe is a picture of the extravagant nature of our God. The purpose of the incarnation is so he could have relationship with us. And he created everything out of nothing. The universe, the galaxies, the planets, the stars. So he can invite us over to hang out. That's pretty extravagant. We, we, have, a God, we have a God who's extravagant in his love. Scripture says, scripture says of our God in Ephesians 2 that he's rich in mercy. One of my favorite verses in 1 John 3, 1 tells us that he loves us with a great and a lavish love. Why were there 12 baskets left over? Because that's his way. I, I remember a, after I grew up and moved out of the house, I'm, I'm the oldest of four children, and I have a sister who's 10 years younger than me. So there were three boys right away, a seven-year break, and then my sister. So at one point, all three boys have moved out of the house, right? It's just my mother, my father, and my sister. So I remember one day after work going by to visit mom, and she's cooking, and she got the monster-sized pot out, and she's making tomato sauce because they're going to have some kind of spaghetti or something for dinner. I was like, Mom, what are you doing? It's only you and Dad and Mom. She said, the only recipe I know, right? <laughs> this is all she knew. Whenever she cooked food, everybody was going to eat. They were going to have as much as they could possibly want, and everybody's going home with food. This is how she did It was her nature. Nobody would leave her table hungry. They were all going to go home. Why? Did she have to do it this way? I mean, she was smart enough to cut the recipe down to about an eighth, and it probably still would have been enough for the three of them. This was her heart. It was, it's, 
It's her mother's fault. Nadine does that. Some of you guys have been to my house for dinner. You eat at my house, you are not leaving hungry, you know? And there's a really good chance you're going to go home with a, you know, a little extra. Why? Because this is the only way she knows how to do it. This is, the nature of our God is to be extravagant. He's extravagant with his mercy. He's extravagant with, with the love. Of course, if he's going to provide lunch, it's going to be extravagant too. There's 12 basketfuls left over. It's who he is. We don't serve a cheap God. We don't serve a powerless God. We don't serve an impotent God. We don't serve a God who's desperate because he lacks the resources to do the things he wants to do. He's big. He's amazing. He's powerful. He knows exactly what he's doing. And we can trust him. Verse 14. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is coming to the world. Now, when the scripture is talking about the prophet, the, the word prophet here is, is capitalized for a reason. The, the prophet that they were expecting was the prophet predicted by Moses back in Deuteronomy 18.15, where it says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your fellow Israelites, you must listen to him. So they're looking at Jesus and they're thinking Deuteronomy 18.15. The people could read the signs. They saw what Jesus did. They saw the way he provided bread in the wilderness. It reminded them how Moses was used to you know, facilitate manner in the wilderness for the Israelites. And, and they remembered the promise of a prophet. And they're thinking, hey, I think this is that. I think Jesus is the guy. This is the one Moses spoke about. Can you imagine how exciting it must have been for them? And so, we'll finish up at verse 15. Jesus knows that they intend, they want to make him a king. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by themselves. This miracle with the loaves of fishes really impressed the crowd. And they were already impressed. They were there because of the signs and wonders of healing the sick. But this this multiplication of food, it just fueled their revolutionary hopes. See, Jesus healed the sick and he fed thousands with a boy's lunch. Imagine the unstoppable army you could support if you can heal the sick and if you could feed multitudes off of someone's lunch. That army could surely overthrow the Roman oppressors. Of course they wanted to make him their national king. They were looking for a military messiah. But Jesus had other plans for his kingdom. So instead, he departed again to a mountain by himself, alone. He went off by himself. So once again, we see that Jesus is more interested in the spiritual realm than the physical realm. If he was building his kingdom, if he was trying to establish his ministry, right? he got the multitudes, they want him as leader, but he's not playing that game. He's looking at the supernatural as opposed to the natural. His eye is set on an eternal heavenly kingdom and not on a temporary earthly kingdom. Listen to me. His ways are not our ways. I bet you if I could find a hundred pastors and put them in this situation, a hundred out of a hundred would have been, yay! Let's go get our tax-exempt status and we're off to the races, right? You got signs and wonders happening, you got crowds coming. Right? You're probably making on Charisma magazine or something. 
Who's going to build a website? His ways are not our ways. It reminds me of Colossians 3.2. Paul writes to us. He says, set your minds on things above and not on earthly things. I think that's part of the lesson that Jesus is trying to teach his disciples here. I think that's part of the test. I think it's what's laid before us here. Set your minds on things above and not on earthly things. Think about that for a second. You know what the word set means here? I once looked up set in the dictionary. There are a hundred different definitions for the word set. One of the ones I like the best is they use the example of setting a post in the ground. Everybody, anybody here ever put up a fence and set a post? We used to live in a place uh, in the Tri-Cities of Washington, fierce winds. The winds were so strong in the Tri-Cities that you could not put up a, a 4 by 4 as a post and then, and then attach a fence to it. The winds would be so strong it would snap those posts and your whole, your whole fence would come down. You had to put steel, some type of metal post in the ground and then attach the fence to it. But that's what it means to set something. It means to dig a hole, pour cement, and it's sticking in the ground. It's set. It's not moving. It's not mobile. It's fixed. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. This is what the Word of God says. Anybody ever heard that expression, don't be so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good? Anybody ever heard that? That's a lie from the pit of hell. That is a lie. From the, that's, that's directly opposed to Colossians 3.2. That's the, exactly the opposite of what Scripture says. That's crap. I don't believe that at all. I think we're no earthly good until we are heavenly minded. And I think that's what this is saying. I think that's what Jesus is saying. Guys, don't be limited by the natural realm. Remember the factor me in. Remember the factor in my presence and my power and my capabilities. Don't count the loaves and the fishes. Don't count how much money's in your pocket. What am I doing? Remember that I'm in your midst. I want to set my mind. I want my mind to be fixed on the heavenly, on heavenly things. And not only does it say to set our minds on heavenly things, it goes on to say not on earthly things. It doesn't even say set your mind on heavenly things first or primarily well, let that be the first place that you go. It says, set your mind on heavenly things, not on earthly things. We need to think differently than we do. Too many of us, we don't even consider things above. And we're consumed with earthly thinking, myself included. It's time for that to change. I am a follower of Jesus. He's my friend. Man, we're tight. He's in my life. How much less anxiety would I have? How much lower would my stress level be? How much different would my life be if I could set my mind on things above and not on earthly things? I don't know. Just be honest, vulnerable for a minute. Sometimes I wonder, what would it be like if I really just went for it? What would it be like in my relationship with God if I didn't throttle back? If I didn't give just a percentage, even a large percentage, of who I am and what I do? What if I lived less with the concern of the fear of men and I lived fully in the embrace 
and the love of God. What what would my experience be then? What would it be for you? What would it be for us as a community? I don't want to hold back anymore. I don't want to do just a little bit. I don't want to live afraid that I'm going to offend somebody. And so I limit my relationship with God. I don't want to do that. I want it all. And I don't want it all because I want to be famous or I want anything. I I just want him. I, I just want to have intimacy with him. I want to have as much of him as a human being could have of him. I have no desire for fame or notoriety. I don't even care about building a big church. I just want to know him. I want to know him with everything that's in me. And then in the possibility of that, help other people know him too. I want to set my mind on things above and not on earthly things. Let's pray. Oh God, this desire is in me. I think it's from you. I really do. And I don't, I don't know how to get from here to there. I haven't gotten there yet. Lord, I pray for myself and for my friends today. Would you put within us, put to death in us the fear of man. Set us free. Lord, it's so hard in a small town. Set us free from worrying about what will people say. What will the neighbors think? Would you set us free from that? Oh, God. Grant us courage and boldness to really go for it. Lord, I pray that we could do what Paul wrote to the Colossians, that we would set our minds on things above and not on earthly things. I pray that we would be heavenly minded, that we would have the mind of Christ, that you would transform us by the renewing of our mind. Oh God, that every thought would be held captive to you. How many different ways can I pray scripture? Oh God, Work in our hearts today. Work in our minds today. Set us free. Oh, God, set us free. Lord, we want more. I'm not sure how, how that happens. I, I, we want more. I, I, for the life of me, I believe we barely scratched the surface of who you are. God, we want more. We want you. We want the real deal. We want the real you. We want the Jesus on the mountainside of multiplied the loaves of fishes so that we can experience that so we can experience who you are, oh God. We want more. Have your way with us, oh God. Each one here, there's a hundred different journeys represented in this room. I pray for each of us that you would walk with us hand in hand, step by step, and take us from where we are into deeper places of intimacy and knowledge and the experience of your lavish love for us, oh God. Take us into those places. Lord, I pray that you put to death in us anything that stands as an obstacle between us and you. Set us free from the past. Set us free from our victories of yesterday. Set us free from our old mountaintops and our old valleys. 
set us free from our last best experience of you. Lord, I don't want to camp here. I want to go higher. I want to go deeper. I want that for me. I want that for my friends. Lord, I ask that you would do this. Lord, we pray the stupid prayer today. Have your way. No matter the cost, whatever it takes, have your way in us. Lord, I don't care anymore. I don't care what it costs me. I don't care what path I have to go on. I want you. I want all of you. I want it to really be you. Let it be so, God. My life is in your hands. Let it be so. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.